I read this passage that, uh, that you just heard read a moment ago where Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you can keep that in your mind and never lose that, I am the vine, and you are the branches. You are not the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, then you will bear much fruit. And this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Boy, what a relief that was that I don't have to talk God into helping me succeed. I don't have to get a favor from God in order to have success in the work that I do because it is actually to his benefit that I bear much fruit. So I started to think about this in the context of my work. Now, now I'm a minister, so I do a lot of religious work, but I'm discovering that that doesn't make it spiritual. It just makes it religious. And what Jesus is talking about here is a kind of fruit that grows up in the middle of our work, but it is not our work. It's not disconnected from our work, but it is not our work. And so I started to read my own job as a minister, you know, spiritual stuff in the context of this chapter, and it literally exploded in front of me. In 2010 or 11, Peggy Noonan wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that I was reading one afternoon, and in it she argued that unemployment in America was not primarily an economic issue, but a spiritual one. I was surprised to read this. First of all, the Wall Street Journal, of all places, to read that the problem with work in America was not economic, but it was spiritual in nature, really surprised me. She was saying, in fact, that it is a spiritual problem that has economic consequences. It is not an economic problem that has spiritual consequences. And yet, whenever we think about unemployment in America, we often start with the economics of it and never get back to the spirituality of it. But the truth is, people are demotivated. They have lost their connections. They've lost their purpose. That is a spiritual problem. Economics are affected by that, but it is at root a spiritual problem. Then in 2012, the Gallup organization did a study of work in America, which they had done every year for the last 12 or 13 years. They surveyed over 25 million people on their survey, which is an extraordinary number, and what they discovered is that only 30% of the workforce in America is engaged in their work. The other 70%, they said, is disengaged or actively disengaged. By those who are disengaged, they wrote, these people are not necessarily hostile or disruptive, but they show up for work and avoid it like the plague. They kill time. They have little concern for the customers, for productivity, for waste, or for safety. They don't think about the mission. They're essentially checked out. Now listen to this. They occupy 
every position in the organization, including executive boards. That number is 52%, more than half of the workforce. The other 18%, or almost one in five, is what they say are actively disengaged. And these are people who are visibly unhappy, and they talk about it. <laughs> they, monopolize, they, they monopolize their supervisor's time. They have more on-the-job accidents. They account for more quality defects. They steal from the company more often. They call in sick more, and they miss more days. They quit at a higher rate, thank God. And the number of this group that they cost America is between 450 and 550 billion dollars every year. So the problem in work in America is not the unemployment, it's employment. There is ethics and relationships and the quality of our work and the imbalance among people who have jobs, not those who don't have jobs. So when I pick up John chapter 15 and I hear Jesus talk about you will bear fruit, lots of fruit, I put that next to my work, and this is where it becomes a sermon. First to myself. Just because I work for a church, it doesn't mean that I'm bearing fruit. Just because I produce an extraordinary amount of work, and just because some people like that work, doesn't mean I'm producing fruit. Just because you work for a Christian organization, just because you have a humanitarian heart, just because you have great dreams for how you are going to change the world doesn't mean that the work you'll be involved in will produce fruit. The fruit that Jesus is talking about is not the same thing as our jobs, but it's not disconnected from our jobs. It's something that grows up in our jobs so that while we are doing our jobs, we are producing fruit, but because it is not connected to a job, we may also do those jobs and not produce fruit. And we may do any job. It is not more likely to produce this fruit inside of the church than it is in any other place. It might even be less likely because you start assuming that it's good. People that are possessed live fruitful lives. And by that I mean they produce stuff that is better and simpler. So one way to know whether or not my work is possessed or not, 
is to look at those two sides and ask myself, am I producing things that are extraordinary? I, I love you guys. So you know I'm going to say something hard. A lot of our work does not produce extraordinary things because we do not take our work seriously. We use it to pay bills, to raise families, to buy vacations or other things that we want in our lives, but we do not take our work seriously, some of us. I love you guys. And so when you look back at your body of work, one way to know whether it is possessed or not is, does it have a quality in it that only God could do? Now, it may not be something outrageous, it may not be wildly popular, and it may not make you rich, but does it have a sign that it has been kissed by God? The other way is to ask yourself, if you are producing that kind of a work, is it coming from a simple life? Or is it so tearing you up inside? Are you working so many hours? Are your relationships so fractured and so fragile? And has everything else in your life been put on hold in order for you to produce that extraordinary work. If either one of those situations is true, then it might be evidence that our work is not yet possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now you know why he had my attention. Because what I see in our culture is either work that is too boring or work that is too disruptive. So I began to read John 15 again and ask myself, what am I looking for when I measure my work next to the fruit that God produces? Here are a few things I found. One is I'm asking myself now, is it supernatural? I just talked about this. Is it supernatural and yet is it natural? Is there a part to it that is more than what human effort can bring so that when work has been kissed by God, when it is possessed by the Holy Spirit, it appears to people outside of that work as if you just got lucky. They'll say, man, do you get lucky a lot. It's because there's a convergence of things that you cannot control. And those things are together with your hard work, the reason why it is so good. But if you were to just push back and put your ambition plus your talent plus your connections plus your creativity and plus the fact that you're a really cool person, put all that together, it does not equal the results that come from your work. And so it is supernatural. And yet at the same time, when you do it, it isn't killing you. It flows naturally out of who you are. Jesus said, if you remain in me and I remain in you, you 
will bear much fruit. He didn't say, you better. You should. He said, if you are connected to me, you will naturally, when you're not even trying to produce much fruit, produce much fruit. So is it supernatural? Second, does it grow out of adversity? The work that I do in my flesh succeeds because of my talent, ambition, creativity, or connections. But the work that the Holy Spirit does succeeds out of my failure, my pain, and my brokenness. Jesus said, if a branch does not produce fruit, he cuts it off. But if a branch does produce fruit, he prunes it so it produces even more fruit. And so the fruit that comes from the Spirit comes at the end of a pruning. And just so you know, the word for cutting off and the word for pruning is the same root word. He seems to say adversity or pain will come into every person's life. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. But when the Holy Spirit is in you, the pain that comes into your life actually produces more fruit. Whereas if the Holy Spirit is not in your life, the pain that comes into your life often kills you. So now I'm asking myself, is the stuff that comes out of my life, is it produced by my long hours and my attention to details and the way that I know how to work an audience, or is it produced out of adversity? This doesn't mean that we should seek pain. It doesn't mean that we should avoid success. It simply means that when you get a little older in life, you will look back and you will notice that the times when it was the hardest for you were the times when God's Spirit was actually doing His greatest work. You will owe your success to your failures. Not to your genius. Geniuses are a dime a dozen, especially around here. <laughs> but if you can stay open to the Holy Spirit, if you can let him hurt you without turning on him, He'll make something out of you. Third, does it bring glory to the Father? Does the Father get the credit? Oh, I misunderstood this. Used to think that this meant every time somebody hands me a compliment, I had to deflect it to the Father. Oh, that wasn't me. It was all, it was all God, all God, all God, all God. Well, I'm sorry. He didn't type it. He didn't write it. He didn't, you know... And so then it felt like I was taking it back. So I'm like this bipolar, schizophrenic, you know? Is it me or is it God? When your work comes from the Holy Spirit, you'll get the compliment, but God will get the credit. 
take an apple from a tree, you bite into the apple if it's really good, you don't compliment the tree. You don't go, what an amazing tree, and walk over and bite the bark. <laughs> you enjoy the apple in the moment. But watch this. If you want more, you better start worrying about the tree. If you want your own, you better plant a tree. So whenever we succeed, we can receive short-term compliments because the long-term credit goes to the Father. You may enjoy what is happening in the moment, but if you want more, you better get beyond the person to the one who made it happen, and that's the Father. And there is a palpable sense of that in the room whenever you're doing well. They're looking at you and saying, you are good, but you are not that good. Where's the tree? Four. Does my audience sense God's love? Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. Just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Love one another. When the work is done in my flesh, by me, then what you sense is passion. On a good day, you'll see excellence, but you will not see love. No, no. That happens when the Holy Spirit takes over. The predominant feeling in the room will not be Gosh, that person is amazing. It will be, see how much he loves us. So wherever you work and whatever your audience is, they will not see you as a threat, no matter how good you are, because they know that you love them. You can say hard things to them. You can even be critical at times, and they will take it because they know that you love them. The feeling in the room is always he or she loves us. It is not primarily he or she is amazing. Which leads to the last one. Will it outlive me? Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to bear fruit. Fruit that shall remain. Whenever I do something in my own power, the influence of whatever I do diminishes as I leave the room. But when the Holy Spirit is in charge, then the influence of my work actually increases the further you get from it. It gains momentum. It doesn't lose momentum. Like the river in Ezekiel's dream, it gets deeper and faster the further it gets from the source. Rivers don't do that. So if the Holy Spirit is in me, there may be an immediate impact that other people will feel 
But that's just the beginning. Are you still with me? All right. Then let's turn the corner. How how then do I do this? You know, because, I mean, I want to. And I'm a Wesleyan, so I feel like I have to, you know. But I surely want to. So I'm asking God, um, what, is there anything I can do in order to have work that is possessed? And I find two things, and they really feed off of each other. And you'll see why it's important. The first one is that I have to learn to remain. If you're going to write something down or remember it, then maybe the phrase you should remember is this. Pay more attention to the vine than you pay to the fruit. Because Jesus is saying, you are in between the vine and the fruit. You are neither the vine, nor are you responsible for the fruit. You are responsible to remain in the vine. There's a story of the gods who had a meeting on how they should destroy the humans. One of them said, we should send them a plague or famine that the plague might kill them. Said another, we should send them war that they will kill each other. Said a third, we should send them success so they will kill themselves trying to keep it. What happens to us is we will start out early in life and God will give us a little success. And very gradually, we will turn our attention off of the vine and on to the fruit and think, how can I produce more? So as a result, we will over-prepare for everything. We will choreograph every move. We will control every variable. Because in our minds, we think that this attention to detail is what's causing the fruit. Our success is actually our undoing. One more time, if you want more fruit, ignore the fruit. and focus on the vine. For anything that helps you remain in him will produce more fruit. But if you focus on producing more fruit that is bigger and better than last year, it will actually detach you from the vine. Pay attention to this. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will produce fruit. Don't worry about it. Second, is I have to learn how to ask. 
Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you can ask whatever you ask, and it will be given you. Oh, I remember the first time I found this verse. I thought this was the best kept secret in the world. I grew up in a church, and so every night before I went to bed, my mother would come in, sit on the end of the bed, and she'd either tell a story, read a passage of Scripture. I remember the night. I can take you back to the place where I first heard this verse. I thought, this is amazing. This is a payday. You ask for whatever, and the Father will give it to you. So after I learned to memorize it, my mother left the room. I literally got on my hands and knees next to the bed, and I prayed, Dear God, give me money. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I got out of the floor, and I went into the bed. I didn't look right away. I figured you should give him time. He might have to find it, or he might have to make it, or, but I figured if I gave him a night, he, he certainly had enough time. And so the next morning when I woke up, it was the first thing in my mind. I thought, this is going to be amazing. I'll be driving when I'm eight, a Mercedes. I got out of bed. I went straight down onto the floor, and I looked under the bed, and it was nothing but dust. And I thought to myself, it doesn't work that way. There must be something I did wrong. You've done this, haven't you? I prayed for something. I didn't get it. What did I blow? Because surely there's a checklist of stuff that you have to get right. Every preacher knows how to give you that list. God will give you everything he'll say except. And by the time he's done, you're like, ah, don't ask. So I was in that place. I thought, there must have been something I've done wrong. How do I get this right? I tried again, still didn't work. Tried again, still didn't work. When I got older, I asked for other stuff. Give me that girl. Okay, that one worked. But <laughs> take away this disease. That one did not. Give me success in the place where I am a pastor. That one did not. Give me a large congregation. That one failed. Listen, pretty soon you just start reeling this in and you quit asking. So I went all the way from, man, this is a blank check to this is a false promise. In her book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, Ruby K. Payne says that one of the chief problems with poverty is that it makes us attached to things. We can't have relationships because we're always thinking about what that person has that we don't have. And it grows from a deficiency of things. I don't wish this on myself. But when you are poor, everything is shaped out of that deficiency. And so you are always reaching out and trying to pull people into your... Some of you know this. You are poor in love. And so you see everything, every relationship as a way to feed that love. And some of you are poor in 
things. And so every time you're around rich people, you're thinking to yourself, how might this relationship be a payoff for me when I need things? Now, I shouldn't be too bold, but I should wait till the right moment, and then I can make the ask. My problem when I was younger is that I asked for things. I wanted things. I did not want him. If he'd have just slid the money under the bed and gone away, I'd have been happy with it. Listen to me. Since that day, I have found him. And I will never ask the same again. So one of two things happens to us, doesn't it? One, because we grew up poor, and every one of you did. Every one of you did. You cannot think of God in any other term but a provider. He's rich, and you know it. And so it is hard to have a relationship with a rich person without in the back of your mind wondering, what is he going to do for me? And so some of you are asking and asking and asking, will you listen to me? It grows out of remaining in him. The stuff that we ask for comes naturally from the friendship that we have with God. When two people are friends, they have a conversation. They are working on something together. In the midst of that conversation, it occurs to the one who has something that the other one has a need. He doesn't even have to raise it. It just surfaces in the context of their conversation. And as an aside, the provider simply reaches over and says, oh, I can take care of that. And when he takes care of it, he's gotten it out of the way. Now they can go back to being friends. Now they can talk about what they really want to talk about because it's the friendship. It is not the benefits that we're thinking about. So some of us have come to God for so long only as a provider only as a rich person who will give me what I ask for. And then, when it didn't work, you did what I did. You said, all right then. You take care of the stuff only you can take care of. And I will take care of everything else. You keep me healthy. And I will work my butt off in order to succeed. I will pay attention to details. I will be a perfectionist. It will distort my relationships. It will consume large quantities of my life. All I'm asking is for you to make me healthy. And I got it from here. Have we not done this? Have we not done this? We're poor. We're poor. We started asking. It didn't work. And we swung over into an... I got it from here. And what I hear the Father saying is, ask for a shoulder, not a gift.
Ask for me to put my shoulder into something we are working on together. Don't ask me to do you a favor. Favors may or may not have friends. Rich people, God included, don't need another cause. They need a friend. He wants to be known. Not just needed.